can be seated. As we continue our series on being a healthy community of love, today we come to the topic of our words or how we speak or the tongue. And I hope that gets everybody's attention because most all of us speak. It's almost like saying we're going to talk about breathing now. Everyone does it. Um, we all talk and average between 7,000 and 20,000 words a day. You know where you fall on that spectrum. You might be an outlier on either end. Um, but how we use words has an oversized impact on our life together as, as a people. And let me say a few things about why. First, words are powerful. How does the Bible begin? Let there be light. And there was light. God's word speaks things into being. And our words don't create like God's, but our words do create new realities. The words, I forgive you, can create a whole new possibility and reality in relationships that are broken. The words, I do, seal a covenant that God is making between a man and a woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage. We had a reminder with our president's words about Vladimir Putin, his last words in Poland, that kind of put the whole world on edge. We all kind of took a deep breath when uh, Biden said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Because words matter. Words have an impact on the world, and they can change what our reality is. Perhaps because they're powerful, perhaps because in speaking we image the God who made us, who speaks. God makes it plain in no uncertain terms that he cares deeply about the words that we use and that we will be held accountable for our words. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 37, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every, every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are really challenging words from our King and Savior, Jesus. Here are some more. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Who of you in hearing those two passages from Jesus isn't saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me. Or what the psalmist in Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We all struggle. We all say things in the dark. We all whisper things in secret. We all utter careless words. We need the Lord's help in this area because the tongue is so hard to tame. We can tame beasts, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures, says James, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And we know it. The tongue is hard to control. Some of you might have had the privilege that our family has had over the last couple of years where we had an, infection, or an infestation of pantry moths because of some flour that we had brought into the house. And, and so these, these moths just kind of multiply. And so there were, you know, weeks, maybe months even, where we were going around the kitchen and just constantly seeing a moth and doing that and trying to catch it and looking at our hands. And invariably, you'd look at your hands after the, the smack and there'd be nothing there and you'd see the moth kind of flittering away. That's kind of like our words, our tongue. Sometimes we catch it and we get control of it only a minute later to seem to have lost control again and it's flittering away, doing its thing. 
We need, desperately, we need help. So given the power of words, the significance that they have as communicated by Jesus, he did say that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, that our words reveal something about our heart and that we will be held accountable for them. Given the challenge of taming our tongues, it should come as no surprise that the New Testament features exhortations about the tongue to the New Testament people of God, to the redeemed people of God. Our text this morning is the end of Ephesians chapter 4, and I would like to invite you to open up your Bible with me, or even the Pew Bible with me, to Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. Paul has expounded the gospel, this amazing good news of what God has done in Jesus to unify Jew and Gentile, to bring about a new humanity. And then he urges us in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he begins to teach us, the church, how to live out practically the life of resurrection, the life of the Spirit, the gift of life that God has given to us. Paul begins to give us specific and practical instruction about how we do this. And what I want us to do this morning is actually first just to fly up to 30,000 feet and just get a bird's eye view of the centrality of instruction about the tongue or about what we speak in Paul's exhortations here in chapters 4 and 5. So we'll do that kind of quickly. And then I want us to come to his first two exhortations after he tells us that we are putting on the new self or the new man in 424 and take a look at those exhortations a bit more specifically and with a bit more focus. So let's go up high and take a broad look with me. And I would encourage you to have the Bible open as we do this just to demonstrate the point that our speaking is central to our identity in Jesus and to living that out. So verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, rather speaking the truth in love. This is such an amazing statement, but we, we speak the truth about God, about his love and grace, his holiness, his righteousness, and about, of course, his good news and gospel that he has sent his son into the world, died on a cross, and been raised from the dead that we might have forgiveness and new life. We speak this truth. We speak the truth about ourselves, that we are uh, beloved image bearers that have been created in God's image, but also broken sinners who have been marred and who continue to walk in a way that's not consistent with him. And we speak these truths to one another in love to edify and to build up. We'll come more to that later. After, in verses 20 through 24, he talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new. Then his first practical instruction has to do with our words. And this will be one that we come back to. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one, body, of one another. Then he deals with anger and then stealing and calls us to work honestly with our own hands and to share with those in need. And then in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Then in verse 31, he lists some things that we are to put away. Two of them are very clearly have to do with our words. Clamor, that's the elevated, animated language of two people in a quarrel yelling back and forth at one another. And then slander, that speech that defames or denigrates our neighbor. We move into chapter 5. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So, so don't speak these things. Instead, what does he say? Let there be thanksgiving. Verse 12 of chapter 5. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret after telling us not to associate with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, then he says, don't even speak about them. Watch what you say. It matters. 
And then I think as a kind of crescendo to this section of Ephesians, he says, don't be drunk with wine or filled drunk, uh, because that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then notice what he says. This is down in verses 18 and, and following in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit in this case? Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have these words that are overflowing from the goodness of God and his grace and his love. So do you see that it's a priority? It's clearly a priority for the people of God. And I mean, in some ways, the, the, the message that I'm bringing this morning is simply like, let's use our words wisely. Uh, and I know that can kind of sound like probably what your mom or dad taught you when you were a, a little boy or girl. Um, but I want you to understand that these are coming in the context of the gospel of Jesus to beloved children. So when Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5, walk, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children. Every exhortation that we receive as the community of God's people is an exhortation that comes to those who are deeply, deeply loved, those who have been rescued and redeemed out of our our sin and our shortcomings and our failures, and who have been invited by God and empowered by God through his spirit to live a new kind of human life that glorifies him in every way. And so the exhortations that we're going to drill down on in verse 25 and verse 29 need to be heard in light of that context of the grace and love of God that is washing over unworthy people like me and like you. So let's drill down. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Therefore, we've got to pick that up. What came right before it, it was the fact that you'd taken off the old self, and that you'd put on the new self. You're being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You've put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in, right, in the righteousness and holiness of the truth, would be a more literal translation of verse 24. Therefore, because you put on this new life that's a gift from God to you, therefore, put away falsehood. And then let each one speak truth with his neighbor. That's a direct quotation, the speaking truth bit from Zechariah 8.16, a passage of the prophet Zechariah that is all about the renewal of God's people. And by picking this up here, Paul is saying, look, we are the, we are the fulfillment of the promises that God made long ago to his people. Zechariah 8 uses the word truth six times. It's a feature of that, of that chapter in that Old Testament prophecy. And Paul's saying, yeah, we're the inheritors of those promises. God has, in fact, acted to redeem and rescue his people. God has, in fact, poured out his spirit upon his people. So we now will, in fact, operate with the behaviors that reflect the renewed people of God that the prophet Zechariah spoke about long ago. The word for falsehood here, in terms of, so both of our exhortations in verse 25 and verse 29, they have a negative, something to put away, and then they have a positive, something to take on. And so this negative here is to put away falsehood, or really, literally, it says put away the lie. The lie. And I think you could see that almost as the great lie. The lie that there is some other God than the God who has been revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. False worship and idolatry. So Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. It's as if Paul is saying, now that you put aside the great lie, the one big lie, 
Let's, let, let's lay aside every other little lie that can go along with life in this present world. Let's, let's throw it off. Let's put it away. Let's not participate in it. And is it any wonder that there's this negative command to, to put away falsehood? The original fall of humanity was because of a lie, right? It was an enticing lie from the serpent. Adam's first words after the fall were a lie to God. Because I was naked, I was afraid to be seen by you. Well, it wasn't because he was naked. It was because he had sinned against his father. He had sinned against God, and he knew that. Lies are a part of a world that God hates in terms of he hates the lies. He doesn't hate, he loves the world, but he hates the lies that are in the world. In fact, in Proverbs 6, there's a list of seven things that are an abomination to the Lord, and only one thing is repeated in that list, and it's lying. Lying lips, verse 17 of Proverbs 6, and a false witness who breathes out lies in verse 19. In John chapter 8, we read this about the devil. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Whereas we read in Titus 1-2 that God never lies. God is a God of the truth. Even in our context here, if you look back with me, if you still have your Bible open to verse 21, we read that the truth is in Jesus. Jesus, we know, is the way and the truth and the life. And so how could we live and find our being in Jesus and continue to walk with a path of, with, with words that are false, with lies? It just doesn't measure up. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, 22. And to fear God in Psalm 34, the psalmist says, I'll teach you what the fear of the, fear of the Lord is like. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We are embedded in a community of people. The series is about being a community, a healthy community of love. We, we, we coexist. We, we are interdependent. We are locked together. We are members of one body. And what, that's what Paul says here. The reason I want you to put away falsehood and to speak truth to one another is because you are members of one body. One commentator writes, we are no longer alienated, independent beings, but people who now belong together in unity with others, whom we must not rob of the truth, according to which they will decide and act. When we lie, we distort reality. And we forfeit the possibility for people to whom we lie that they can live in light of the truth and reality, which is the only place to live, to operate. There's only one reality, and lies obscure it. So Paul is saying, because you're connected, because you're members of one another, then put away falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbor. Neighbor here is the neighbor within the Christian community, much like it was last week, because Paul is writing very clearly to the Christian community. I haven't said anything that surprised anybody yet. Speaking the truth, I mean, don't tell lies. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But it's hard to do. It's easy to comprehend, but hard to do. Jen Wilkin, the Christian author, in her 2018 book, In His Image, as she opens up the chapter on God's truthfulness and therefore our call to be truthful, this is what she writes. She says, This morning I sat down to write and I did some email. In my inbox was an invitation to an event that I did not want to attend. 
The host, sensing that the RSVPs were coming in a little light, had asked that all invitees had asked all invitees their reason for not wanting to come. Uh, you probably shouldn't do that, I would think. Um, I crafted a response about how my family had already had plans that weekend and how sorry I was to have to miss. This was a lie. Please don't miss what I'm saying. On the morning I set aside to write a chapter about the truthfulness of God, my first impulse on opening my computer was to misrepresent the truth. And so she deleted it and wrote a kindly but minimally worded honest response. It's natural to us. It's hard. It's nuanced. We're in situations all the time, day by day, week by week, where we are tempted for various reasons to distort the truth. She goes on, actually, to make an interesting observation. She says, you know, polite speech takes decades to learn from ch childhood to adulthood. It takes a long time. Uh, kind speech takes years and years to learn for children. But every child can tell a lie right when they can start to talk. <laughs> every toddler learn knows it. It's kind of embedded in us. It's embedded in our sinful nature to lie. And it's easy for us to do. We all struggle with this, don't we? So this is the, the, the first exhortation. I want to give you an image like of a sieve, you know, a sieve with like a, a mesh, wire mesh that allows certain things through. In a sense, this first exhortation is a sieve with a mesh that's got slightly bigger holes. The next one in verse 29, we're going to get some smaller holes. But the bigger hole, the sifting through, is anything that's not true can't come through the sieve, can't come across the mouth. Put away falsehood. Each one of you speak truth to your neighbor. So let's go to the next sieve then, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We all know that words can tear down and words can build up. In fact, I bet most of us here have lodged memory, like strong memories of words that have been spoken to us that have been tearing down. Some of you may have grown up in homes where instead of receiving the affirmation, love, and encouragement of parents, you were continually belittled and criticized and told that you didn't measure up. I heard a testimony this last week of a young woman whose femininity didn't match her father's expectations. And all that she heard was the message, you are not my little girl. Words can tear down deeply. Conversely, we all know that words can edify and build up. The negative of this exhortation in verse 29 is against corrupting talk. Let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And the underlying word here for corrupting means rotten or putrid. Think about how many of you, I mean, we've all had the experience, haven't we, of buying a bag of oranges at the grocery store and coming home and opening it up ready, and we get one that's like green and moldy. And what do we do with it? We throw it away, because to eat that would jeopardize our health. It wouldn't, it wouldn't build us up. It would tear us down. That's the kind of image of the words that we're using. Rotten and putrid words that would be harmful to your neighbor, harmful to your brother or sister, that would hurt, that would tear down. We, the, 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 um, this is the kind of stuff that's not supposed to come out of our mouths. No put-downs, no slurs, no slanders, no, no dismissals. No matter what you feel, what you feel on the inside, because you're going to feel a lot of different things. We all feel a lot of different things. Paul's saying, don't let the corrupting talk that comes out, don't let it come out. 
He actually, as I mentioned earlier, prohibits clamor and slander in verse 31, which would both be examples of corrupting, corrupting speech. I was reading Psalm 101 a couple of years ago, and it just hit me like a two-by-four over the head when I read what David wrote. He said, as he was describing the kind of community around that he would want to surround himself with as, as the anointed king of God, as the one who is responsible, as the shepherd over the people of God, and he said in verse 5 of Psalm 101, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Wow. He didn't say whoever puts it on a blog post or tweets about it or does it publicly. He said, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. And God's anointed, and David understood. He understood the severity, the consequences of words that were destructive and would tear down, and how unfitting they were for the redeemed people of God, for God's chosen to have on our lips. So no corrupting talk, that's the negative. Instead, what's the positive? But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give, may give grace to those who hear. The word here for building up is the exact same word that we saw last week in Romans 15 too. Let each of you please your neighbor to build him up. It's the same thing, same idea here. We talked last week about how that takes intentionality and measuring and cutting, and it takes time and how easy it is to destroy, how e easy it is to tear down, how easy it is to harm. And words can do that so easily. And Paul says, no, 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 I want you to give words use words that are good for building up. And he gives two reasons, or two things that explain words that build up. First, as fits the occasion, or as meets the need, might be a more, is a more literal translation here. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. My sister was widowed a couple years ago, and I think one of the ways that this, you know, that our words are often not quite fit for the occasion or meeting the need is when we approach people in grief, right? We say all kinds of things, and she gave witness to that, and many of you have had that experience in the throes of grief. People come and they offer a word that they think is supposed to be edifying, but it only exacerbates the grief. They're a bit more maybe like Job's friends rather than like Jesus, who in the grief of his friends, what did he do? He wept. He didn't even use words. Or maybe the words after somebody has just poured their life out and their heart out into something that they prepared and you thought there were a couple things that weren't quite right and, and after they finish, you know, what do you say to them? Well, may, there's a good time for criticism, right? But maybe it's not right after they finish. <laughs> Those are words that aren't fit for the occasion. Words that are fit for the occasion, Paul goes on to explain, they give grace to those who hear. They're a source of blessing, a benefaction, to your neighbor. And this is likely a, a human dimension, that there are blessing and a benefaction from one person to another, but also we shouldn't rule out the sense in which our words to one another can be vehicles for divine benefaction and divine generosity coming to someone. We are the agents of God in one another's lives in the Christian community, and the way that we speak, when we encourage, when we build up, when we affirm, when we remind someone of their identity in Christ, when we do these words that build up we can be vehicles of the grace and generosity of God in the life of our brother or sister. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I want to offer Jesus as perhaps the best example of words that are fit for the occasion. Let me just give you three quickly that you know. 
Luke 19, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. How gracious those words were and everything that followed. Or to a woman who thought she was good for nothing, washed up, on the, and was very clearly on the outsides of her culture and society. She was looked upon as less than by all of the Jewish people, and Jesus runs into her at a well in the midday, and he says, if you knew who had said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Those are words fit for the occasion, giving grace to those who hear or later in the Gospel of John, when this woman had been dragged before Jesus, the guilty one. Where was the man? We don't know, but she had been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus writes in the sand. We're not sure what he wrote. And the people walk away. And what does he say in this tender moment where he could crush this human being? Quite literally in her shame and her guilt. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We want to know how to speak rightly, how to speak with words that are fit, that fit the need. We, we should study the life and ministry of Jesus, our great example. We're told later to walk in love as Christ loved us, and he loved us with his words. To be clear, in verse 29, Paul gives two reasons for not corrupt, using corrupt corrupt or harmful words that tear down. The first is that they don't build up your neighbor. But the second comes in verse 30. I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, but I at least want to acknowledge it. What does verse 30 say? And the and, that is a conjunction. It connects verse 30 to verse 29. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When you use corrupting and harmful words toward your brother or sister in Christ in this community, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. The very one whose purpose in that, in your brother or sister's life, is to give them life. It's to build them up. It's to renew them. It's to strengthen them. And when you speak against them, when you use words that are harmful against them, or when I do, we are grieving the very Spirit of God because of the words that we speak. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't work against the purposes of God in, in your neighbor's life, in the community, with your words. Now, let me nuance this for just a moment. Because speaking words that fit the need or the occasion doesn't mean the words won't be hard words. This is not a call to oversweet, stroking language. In other words, we shouldn't confuse social charm for grace-giving words. Flattery is a sin. And it's one we're tempted to practice with our mouths, but it is ultimately destructive because it is excessively praising a person and doing so insincerely for the sake of one's own self-interest. And it is not rooted in the truth, and it doesn't pass the first sieve. Psalm 55, 20, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. I love Proverbs 27.4 when we think about words, but the second half of the verse is profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We can use what seem like sweet and pleasant words 
to cover over malice, hatred, disdain. Sometimes further, in the work of reconciliation, we must speak the grievance, the sin, in order to do that work properly. We've talked about that a few sermons ago. And in the work of love, we have an obligation with our brother or sister to call out destructive behaviors that are tearing that person's life apart. And that will not be an easy word to give. That's the first half of the proverb, 27.4, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Words fit for the occasion, words that give grace are not necessarily words that are easy to hear. We shouldn't make that conflation. In fact, we watch Jesus again speak some harsh and challenging words in different contexts. You've turned my father's house into a house of robbers or den of robbers when it should be a house of prayer. He's speaking words of truth that need to be spoken in that context. Yet, having nuanced it in this way, let me kind of buttress up against something else that I may have just opened the door to, so I'm going to take it away real quick. This doesn't give any of us the permission to use the truth as a weapon in the life of our brother or sister. And this can be done. We all know it can be done. Our intent with the truth genuinely matters. To bludgeon someone with the truth may pass the first sieve of verse 25. It's not false. It does not pass the second and more narrow sieve of verse 29, where the mesh holes in the mesh are a little bit smaller. Because then the truth must only be spoken and used in that case if it is for the sake, if it fits the occasion and it gives grace to those who hear. And so we need to have discernment about our own hearts. I would put it this way, truthfulness is a necessary but not sufficient condition for speech that is pleasing to God and good for our neighbor. If it's not true, it doesn't matter what your sweetness is, it will not pass the test. It can't get through the first sieve. But if it's not edifying, even if it's true, then it can't really get through the second sieve. It shouldn't be passed. Proverbs 12, 18 is a passage I've been reflecting on recently. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise uses words that heal. It may not feel like grace in the moment, maybe to the hearer, like the surgeon's scalpel doesn't feel good. But the words are intended to build up and to strengthen. They're intended to extend a ladder to our brother or sister in Christ on which they can take a step to cl closer to Christ's likeness in their own lives. It is to build them up to edify. Rash words, this proverb says, rash words are like the sword thrust. And swords pierce as well, but they do so indiscriminately. They do so to inflict pain, to hurt, to take away life, not to give it. Remember that we're beloved children, as Paul is giving us these, these exhortations about our tongue. Remember that you're a beloved child. I just, let's ask the question, what are the words that we are using? Are they careless words? Are they rash words? Are they words intended to inflict harm or to spread rumor? Are they words that are careless? Or are they true? And do they edify? 
The reality is, is, this goes beyond our text, but not certainly beyond the biblical witness itself. The reality is, is that if we do not have truthful, edifying words to speak, the biblical command is to do what? It is to remain silent, not to speak. My guess is that most of us would do far better in life if we spoke less, not more. I mean, some of you in your marriages need to speak more, not less, so don't get me wrong. Uh, don't take that the wrong way. But all of us would probably walk more like Jesus if we spoke less and not more. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains, restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs ten nineteen. And then Proverbs 17, 27, and 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And this is one of the most, this, is this next line, verse 28 of Proverbs 17. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. I mean, if you know how the fool features in Proverbs, they, are not, they don't get good press at all. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. And when he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. That's how big of a deal this is. That's how much we want to hear the exhortation. Even a fool who shuts his or her mouth is wise. So how do we grow as I close in this? I think the first thing we, I would say is we, we do come to the Lord and we do acknowledge that we all fall short. We say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I think secondly, the way that we grow in godly speech, in taming the tongue, is to be saturated with the love of God for us in Jesus. It is actually to begin to embody the, and to take up and to dwell upon the kinds of things that we've even been talking about together in this series, to know first that we are deeply, deeply, deeply loved to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to know that we have been in a way that is totally unmerited by the God of heaven and earth, that we have been embraced, affirmed, loved, nourished, provided for, and guaranteed a future that cannot be taken away, and that we've been embraced in this way as those who nonetheless have fallen short, who have sinned against, who have used careless words even in the past week and yet he embraces us still, and then who begin to prioritize what it means to be that person as we prioritize right relationships, as we offer forgiveness to one another, as we bear one another's burdens, as we please our neighbor for his or her good, and as we walk in these ways, as we dwell in these realities, then I believe God, by his mercy and grace, will begin to sanctify our tongues, which may mean just shutting them down, to increasing our self-control, so that when we speak words, and I want to challenge you in this week ahead, Every word you speak, is it truthful? Is it edifying? And if it's neither of those, then I would encourage you by the, to, to, to appeal to your Heavenly Father to say, Lord, help me not to speak. Help me to tame the tongue. This is really central to becoming a healthy community of love. 
because we've talked about how sin is the issue that every community deals with, and we will forever. But sin is often manifest through the tongue, as James 3 says, and damage can be done so quickly. May the Lord, in response to his grace and love, give you and me mercy that we would not grieve his spirit by what we say, but our mouths would be filled with songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we would sing and make melody in our hearts and that we would give thanks to him in everything. We would be so enamored by his goodness and love and mercy that when we open our mouths, it's not criticism and judgment and slander and gossip and conjecture, but it is praise and thanksgiving and love and grace. Let's pray. We ask for your help, O oh God. Every one of us is guilty. Every one of us falls short. And Lord, we pray, I pray that we'd hear these exhortations of the Apostle Paul in response to everything that he had written up to this point. We long, O oh God, to put on the new self that is created after your likeness in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. Lord, let every word that we speak, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We love you. Thank you that you are patient with us. Help us, we pray, to grow for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.